Morning, New Hope family. Glad that you're here. Glad that you're joining us virtually if you're watching from home or from work or from a car. I'm going to invite you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 if you have a Bible with you this morning. Maybe electronically, maybe a hard copy. Maybe you have your phone. It's a good time to pull it up. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to look at a verse that we looked at around Easter time in response to a question that came in. We're working through a series called Hard Questions. And there's a, quite a few questions we're using in the very beginning here of the series to kind of ramp up. The really, really hard questions are coming this summer, but here's the hard question that's coming this morning. Why did Jesus have to suffer so severely? And I know in response, individuals, various individuals sent the question in after we were talking about on Good Friday, uh, the great drops of blood that Jesus was sweating in the garden and then visualizing what was happening in the crucifixion. And then logically, the question, especially from people who are new to church, would say, why? What, what's up with the torture? What's going on there? We're going to examine that in just a minute, but I would like to pray with you before we do that. So while you're turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I have just a, a thing to pull to your attention for the parents this morning. There's these uh, little pads that are available for you if you have children with you in the seat next to you this morning. And these are over in the quad area, out by the children's ministry area. If you want something your kids can take notes on this morning, you can turn the pad back in after the service, but it would allow them to doodle if they want to during the service, but don't think they're not paying attention. So last week at the end of the 11 o'clock service, a little girl came up to me and she handed me a picture that she had drawn. That I'm going to hold it real still so the camera can pick it up so you can see that. So she got such detail, she got even the screens that are behind me. And she got me there standing on the stage, and then fortunately she didn't make me look too fat. And, and she got the details of all the little hexagons on there, and I thought, oh, that's really precious. I'm going to hang on to that. But at the same time, Debbie was working on ordering in these little pads so that kids could pick these up, and you can get these each week. They're out there by the children's desk, and the kids can bring them in here into the service if they'd like to. Let's take a minute and step into prayer, asking God to be our teacher, because this hard question, I believe, is going to reorient you a little bit as to when you pick up the cup in a few minutes, when you pick up the bread in a few minutes for communion, it's going to be a, a reminder of why and how significant this is to you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, on behalf of everyone who's part of this right now, whether virtually or here in person, we come before you and ask that your spirit would overwhelm us and that we would be encountering you and not just listening to a, a human say these words, but rather, Father, your spirit would superintend and pour through this, and you've promised that your word comes alive, so God, do that now, that we would never take this as mundane, but rather, Father, that it would be so infectious in us that it would cause us to be bold on behalf of people who don't know you yet. Father, I turn this over to you. And I ask that you would bless it, that you would use it, that you expand the kingdom through the name of Jesus Christ, who is worthy of all the praise and honor and glory and worship that we could possibly give. It's in his name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. 
The earliest known biological warfare in the world took place in 1357. Mongolian army had made its way west, trapped between Russia and China is the Mongolian Empire. Genghis Khan brings it into existence in the 1200s. By 1350, the Khans are thoroughly entrenched as the leaders of the Mongolian people. And they decided that it was time to expand their empire. And so they move west towards what we call today the Ukraine. But at that time, they knew it as Crimea, perhaps you've known as the Crimean Wars. On the north shore of the Black Sea in Crimea is a city known as Kaffa. It's a port city, the capital city, very prosperous. And Mongolia set its sights on it, saying, we want that as part of our empire. So they decided to launch an attack. They laid siege to the city. The city did not fall. It was very defensed, well defensed. And so they came up with an idea that no one had ever conceived before. They brought with them bodies from their country. People who had recently died and they put them in catapults and they launched the bodies over the wall of Kaffa. Those bodies had died with what was known as the Black Plague. Heretofore, it had not arrived in Europe. Their hope was that they could destroy the inhabitants of the city and then take over the city because the infection would be so strong, the epidemic spreading so fast that it would wipe out the population. Well, of those who did survive, they were absolutely terrified by what they saw with their friends and their neighbors and their relatives dying with this new epidemic that had hit them. And so they fled. They fled to Italy. Italy housed them for a while and they made their way from city to city, eventually moving out to the port cities. And then from there, they made their way through Europe. And within three years, 20 million people had died from the Black Plague. That epidemic was the greatest known epidemic ever to encounter humankind. It moved at such a pace, leaving nothing but death in its wake. It deserved the title, the Black Plague. One other greater epidemic brought more infection to all of humanity, and it was far more extensive and far more deadly than all. And that particular one is called the Plague of Plagues, and it's 100% fatal. No one survives it. Like all the other plagues and all the upper epide other epidemics, it brought with it physical death, but it also brought with it eternal death. And that particular plague is known as sin. Scripture speaks of it this way in Romans 5.12, through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all. And when you hear the word spread, you immediately think of an infection. You think of a plague, you think of an epidemic. Well, very interestingly, the Greek word that's used for spread actually means to be a piercing and entering into an overwhelming. So I want you to look at Romans chapter 5 again one more time. Look with me on the screen. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So we're the descendants of Adam, and we've all been infected. We've all got this epidemic, and we've been sinners from birth. 
According to the Bible, sinners by our very nature because it was handed down to us. So Romans 5.12 is not a one-off statement. The Bible speaks of this repeatedly. Let me show you a couple of examples. With me on the screen at this, Psalm 51.5. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Or Romans 3.10. There is none righteous, not even one. The consequence of this particular plague is that there is no one who does not sin. Every one of us. I don't think that's rocket science. I don't think that's new information to you. But the writers of the Bible understood that to the degree that they would say this. Solomon wrote, Proverbs chapter 20, who can say I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin. Solomon asked that question because he said no one could. Read chapter 20 of Proverbs. No one possibly could say, I'm clean. I got no sin on me. But the outcome of this epidemic... The outcome of this particular plague, the plague of sin, is death. Ezekiel 18.20, the person who sins will die. So we find that sin immediately produced two disasters. Immediately it produced alienation from God, spiritual life from God, and a relentless eternity in hell because there has to be a price paid for it. Yeah, here's where the good news kicks in. God made a cure, and He didn't need Pfizer, and He didn't need Johnson & Johnson. God made a cure, and I want to emphasize the word made with you this morning, because you're going to find that coming out in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So God made a cure, and that triggers some really profound questions that go along with the hard question. How? How? Can an absolutely holy God reconcile with people who are born in sin, who by their very nature are sin? How can those who deserve no mercy receive it? And this big question, how can the demands of justice and love be met? Well, one brief verse answers what seems to be a dilemma, and that's in 2 Corinthians. So look with me on the screen at this. Some of you know it by heart. You didn't even need to open your Bible. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Theologians have called that a beautiful string of pearls. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous statement. Beautiful to look at, beautiful to read, beautiful to ponder. Read it one more time. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. That's a verse that deserves serious examination, especially in light of this question that's been asked, why did He have to suffer? So let's just go with the first two words here. He made. Well, who's the He? The He is God, God the Father. And God the Father has a cure, this reconciliation that we discover is God's plan. It has to be God's plan because we could not bring it about. It could not happen unless He initiated it because we can't devise our own path to God. We're dead. We're in sin. According to what Scripture says, Ephesians 2.1, you're dead in your trespasses and sin. The thing that's just waiting for you is death at the other end, according to what the Bible's telling us. 
So the lie of false religion is that we can make our own path to God. It's a very popular lie that you can earn your way. But Scripture says this, Isaiah 64, 6, for all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, or like what you just saw a minute ago in Romans 3.10. There's no one righteous, not even one of us. Do you know what the most popular religion in the world is? The most popular religion in the world today is the most popular religion in the world yesterday and thousands of years ago. It's called the religion of human achievement. And people worship at that religion constantly. But the human religion achievement can never bring about reconciliation with God. The only way true reconciliation can take place is if God initiates the reach. Because we're dead. We're dead in our sins. So it requires him to reach to us. And that is exactly what Peter announced to all the world just days after Jesus ascended to the Father. We find the resurrection taking place. We find the ascension taking place. And then Peter shows up with all of the apostles, and they're in Jerusalem. And Peter turns from fishermen into amazing spirit-filled preacher. And look what he says in the midst of what he's saying to people. Acts 2.23, Jesus, he was delivered over to death by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. There's only one Greek word in your notes this morning, and if you've looked already, you see it on the screen. It's this word boule. It's talking about the volition, the purpose, the will. When he uses the word plan of God, the predetermined plan of God, he's using this particular word here, this concept, the will, the counsel, the purpose of God. So look at it one more time. Look with me on the screen at Acts 2.23. This man, Jesus, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And then Peter tells us, but God did it in conjunction with humankind. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. This means for you and I that he did not, Jesus did not go to the cross simply because Judas betrayed him only. He didn't go to the cross simply because people, his friends even, turned their back on him only. He didn't go to the cross because a bunch of religious zealots decided that they needed to execute him only. Not only because they schemed, though they did, and he did not go to the cross because a riot mob intimidated the governor of Rome, though they did. Jesus intentionally went to the cross as the outworking of God's plan to rescue you. If you agree with that, say amen. It's the truth of Scripture. I know you know this, but we need to be reminded of this of this issue of why did he have to suffer? He intentionally went to the cross as the outworking of God's plan. And I'm here to tell you this morning that only God could design a plan that would dissatisfy the demands of his justice and his wrath, and at the same time bring to you his love and his grace. To the degree that the Bible says people who don't get it, those who are lost, they would say, that's crazy. Are you kidding me? That's foolish. And that's what the writers of Scripture said. 
to those who are lost, to those who are perishing, the message of the cross is foolishness to them. It doesn't make sense. Only God could conceive of and execute that plan. And praise God, New Hope, He did. But reconciliation, reconciliation like that requires death. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. I don't know what you get in your paycheck. You don't know what I get in my paycheck. But we know what everybody's going to get in their paycheck at the end of life if they're not putting their trust in Jesus Christ. We're told the wages, the paycheck for sin is death. And because the wages of sin is death, reconciliation with God, it demands a death. And in order to defeat death, it's going to take someone who's greater than death. Anybody know somebody like that? What's his name? Jesus. So that's the second part of 2 Corinthians 5.21. Look with me on the screen. Him who knew no sin. So he made him who knew no sin. That designation, that qualifier eliminates every single human who's ever been born or is currently living or will be born. We've already said this. First Kings, first Kings, there we go. First Kings. First Kings 8:46. There is no man who does not sin or Romans 3:23. We're all disqualified. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Meaning we don't have the credentials for the job. There's only ever ever been one who knew no sin, who could bear the wrath of God. And Ephesians 6 describes him, Ephesians 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So in the predetermined plan of God, God the Son would condescend and become Jesus the man. And he had a human mama, but he did not have a human papa. Do you know the Bible never refers to Joseph as his father? The Bible never refers to Joseph as his biological dad in any form whatsoever. He was born to a mother, but the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in the womb. Therefore, he is the perfect one to be the sacrifice for sin. And then comes the stunning shift in language. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. He's writing for the benefit of the church alive in 2021. And he puts this down in ink, 2 Corinthians 5.21, him who knew no sin. We get that, Paul. To be sin. After presenting Jesus to us as absolutely holy and as perfect... This letter to the Corinthians makes this stunning statement that God made him to be sin. And we've got to be very careful with understanding exactly what that's saying. It does not mean that Jesus became a sinner on the cross. It is not that piece of information that I'm delivering to you this morning. God could not and cannot possibly violate God. God can't sin against God. He couldn't violate God's law. The disobedience of God's law is sin. And it's unthinkable 
that God the Father would make anyone a sinner, let alone God the Son. Throughout his entire life, blemish-free, no sin whatsoever, on the cross, covered with your sin, he remains the unblemished lamb. How does that work? Isaiah 53 is one of the few passages in the Bible to help you understand exactly what's going on here. So if you have a moment, just flip over your Bible to the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. I'm going to just plow down through this with you very quickly. We could spend hours on this. It's one very difficult passage, but let me just show you this to set up communion. If you don't have your Bible open, look with me on the screen at this. Isaiah 53, verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by a scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. I want you to feel the weight of this. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. I've been asking God this week and especially this morning to keep me from being complacent about this. If you grew up in church, there's a very good chance that you come to church complacent. And communion tends to reorient us a little bit. When I hit this, the weight of what I'm looking at and what we're examining here together, it, it, it causes me to want to shrink in humility. Someone texted me after the first service and said, what you just delivered I think I would label it the great trade. And I texted him right back and said, except throughout my life when I've traded for things, I think I get fair equity, or I try to. I don't feel like God got fair equity. He caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Hear this, church. Christ Jesus was not made a sinner, nor was he punished for sin of his own. God the Father treated him as if he were a sinner by charging to his account the sins of everyone who would ever believe. Look at verse 6 again. Look with me on the screen. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. All those sins of all who would believe. I want you to do something for me right now. If, if you consider yourself a believer in Jesus Christ, that he is your Lord and Savior and has died for your sins, would you just simply say, amen? amen. So what Isaiah 53 is telling us is that for everyone who would say amen, for all who would believe, he took upon himself every lie you ever told, every gossiping word that you ever delivered, 
every indiscretion that you ever committed yesterday, five days ago, 10 days ago, 10 years ago, and 10 years in the future. Every sin that you ever commit throughout the course of your lifetime is really crucial to understand this. He took all of them upon himself, and it was punished with the full fury of God's wrath unleashed against every single one of those sins. And that moment is what is captured on the cross in Matthew 27, when Matthew writes down, I heard him say it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the moment he takes it upon himself. It is so crucial to understand that the only sense in which Jesus was made a sinner is by the imputation, the charging, or the transferring of your sin to his account. The only reason that we can be reconciled is because Christ Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. If not, no one, none of us could be reconciled to God. So hear this, at the cross, he did not become evil. God credits your sin to Christ's account and his righteousness to our account. So personally, he hangs on the cross completely pure, but officially guilty. What kind of a trade is that? Is that a fair deal? Therefore, don't let your mind wander to the point where you would say, well, he died with my sin on him, therefore he had to have been sentenced to hell. Jesus was not sentenced to hell, or he could not have said to the thief on the cross, this day you will join me in paradise. So Jesus wasn't sentenced to hell. Christ's death was the perfect cure, but only for those who believe. And there's where it speaks about you now, the last part of verse 21 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look with me on the screen. So that we, we, New Hope, who are about to lift the cup and the bread, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The benefit of God imputing our sin to Jesus, and I'm sorry, the English language lacks so greatly. I, I hate to use the word benefit. It, it's like you put an option on your car or a benefit to your insurance program. But I don't know what else to use. Maybe you can help me find a better word for this. But the benefit of our sin being transferred to Jesus and his righteousness to us is that we become the righteousness of God in him. Wow because Jesus paid the full penalty. God no longer holds your sin against you, your past, your present, your future. Whatever sin you committed 10 years ago, or you will commit 10 years in the future, he's wiped all of that away because of Jesus. Look with me at what the writer of Psalms said in chapter 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Do you feel blessed this morning? I mean, you only have to think of the past week of your sins. How blessed are we? Now, I don't believe that we can understand the answer to why the suffering until we first process what we just walked through. And so now, the hard question. Why the intense suffering? Isaiah 53 says, the Lord was pleased to put him to grief. Look with me on the screen at this. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him 
to grief. Your translation might say the Lord was pleased to bruise him, which causes a lot of non-churched people and newly churched people and even those who have been in the church 20 years saying, what? How, how could that please God? How, how could that be understood that way? Know this, Isaiah 53 is considered the greatest of all the messianic prophecies. And for a non-believer to process it, it is so difficult that even in Jewish synagogues around the world today, they will not read Isaiah 53 because they can't make sense of it. But beyond a doubt, it's talking about Jesus and the bruising and the crushing that's spoken of here. It's talking about the crucifixion and the death. And we're told that the son was crushed by the father and the Lord was pleased to do it. How do I understand that? Well, it's, it's not pleasure like, oh boy, today I get to torture Jesus. That's where our mind goes when we hear pleasure, that he was pleased to do this. Well, one other word for you this morning, it's not Greek, it's a Hebrew word, and it's this particular word you see on the screen, kafat. This is the word pleasure to incline to. How do I understand that? Why was God inclined to that? because sin cannot be ignored. We've already saw this in Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here's the issue. The issue is iniquity is another word for sin. And all sin is against God. First and foremost, you may offend a friend. You may tick off someone in your social circle. You may really disrespect your spouse, but first and foremost, all sin is against God. And God does not wink at sin. Because he loves the honor of his name, he will never act inconsistently with his nature. He will not act as though sin doesn't matter. Therefore, God will not wink at sin. And we really wish he would, because when we commit an indiscretion, we lose control of our tongue, we say something in gossip, we think, oh man, I hope he wasn't paying attention to that. But God sees everything. He knows everything. So God the Father makes an agreement with God the Son that Jesus will demonstrate the immeasurable worth of the Father's glory. How? By taking the suffering that our sin deserved. Verse 5 is even more explicit about what Jesus went through. Look with me on the screen. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. And it's very, very clear as you read the Bible that it's not because of his sin. Verse 9 in Isaiah 53 says, and they made his grave with the wicked. And he was with a rich man in his death. Yep, that was all true, all prophetic. Five, six hundred years in advance that was written. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. In other words, not for his own sin that the Father was pleased to bruise him. So how do I understand it? Because Jesus was righteous then, he's righteous now. But because he wanted to deliver because he wanted to demonstrate his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. 
So to save sinners and at the same time magnify his glory, God lays on Jesus all the crap that you have ever committed in your life. And we're told in Romans 5.8 that in doing that, he's demonstrating his love for us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ Jesus is dying for us. How could that be the Father's delight? Isaiah 53.10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Understand pleasure now. If you have your Bible open to Isaiah 53, just look at verse 10 and you'll see what I'm talking about. I'm not going to put it on the screen. Just hear me on this or look at your own copy of God's Word. God's pleasure is in what the Son accomplished, in the brutal, sacrificial fulfillment in His death. Verse 10 actually reads this way, the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in His hand. It means God's great pleasure in what was going on that day is in the great success of what the Son is accomplishing in His sacrifice. And the result of His accomplishment is that there would be many spiritual offspring. Is that you this morning? Are you His spiritual offspring? If so, God takes pleasure in you because you are the fruit of what Jesus did. So in verse 11, we get a description of that. This is you in verse 11. Watch this. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Are you the many? If you are, I look forward to lifting the cup and lifting the bread with you this morning. If you, if you would say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, that he would take away my sin, past, present, future, that he would do that for me, I want to be part of the many. God's good purposes in his eternal plan prospers in the hands of the Son. So when the Father handed the Son over to suffer, he never ceased to love the Son. He's pleased with what the Son is doing. And in that moment, the Son takes upon himself everything that God hates in us. And even then, the father knew the son's suffering was demonstrating the depth of his own love for the honor of God's name, for the glory of God the Father. And in that love, the father took deepest pleasure. This will give you a new lens on why Jesus said what he did in John 10, 17. Here's where we end this morning. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Praise God for that church. When Jesus suffered and died so severely, so torturously, he was glorifying the name of God the Father. So we're given all these huge warnings when we take communion about not taking it lightly. Those are the reasons. If you're new to New Hope, we have a tradition here in which we just read a paragraph out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 before we receive the elements. I'm just going to read that to you right now and help you to process these instructions. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so this massive warning, verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and so doing, he has to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I understand why those writers took it so seriously. They understood the theology behind what we looked at this morning. We've always allowed time for individuals to examine themselves before coming up to pick up the elements. And, and by the way, when you pick up one of these cups this morning, it's a two-cup system. The, the bread is below the, the juice, so you're picking up two cups together. I failed to tell the first group that, and people had to come back up to the table. So just make sure you pick up the, the single cup, which is a two-cup stack. Know this, though. This time right now is exactly what the Bible's talking about, for you to examine yourself. Where are you at in relationship to God? And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, by all means, go to the back, go to the front, pick up the elements. We're going to celebrate together what Jesus did for us. But this time for you right now is to examine yourself.